0: Now Mary will come and read the scriptures for us.
1: This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life, because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongues, but with actions and in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Please do have a seat. A few years ago now, I uh, read a book that really impacted me. It's called uh, The Good News We Almost Forgot. It's by an American pastor, a chap called Kevin DeYoung. Some of you may have, have heard of him. And the book's subtitle uh, maybe a little bit more informative, Rediscovering the Gospel in a 16th Century Catechism. You can see you're all enthralled by, <laughs> by this. Um, but he kicks off with this challenge, and it's a, a really, uh, a really sort of helpful challenge, I think. So let me just read this for you. He says this, the only thing more difficult than finding the truth is not losing it. The only thing more difficult than finding the truth is not losing it. What starts out as new and precious becomes plain and old. What begins as a thrilling discovery becomes a rote exercise. What provokes one generation to sacrifice and passion becomes, in the next generation, a cause for rebellion and apathy. Why is it that denominations and church movements almost always drift from their theological moorings. He goes on to say this, no doubt the church in the West has many new things to learn, but for the most part, everything we need to learn is what we've already forgotten. The chief theological task now facing the Western church is not to reinvent or to be relevant, but to remember. Remember. We must remember the old, old story. We must remember the faith once delivered to the saints. We must remember the truths that spark reformation, revival, and regeneration. Isn't that a great quote? I think it's a great quote. We must remember the old, old story. We must remember the truths of our faith. But actually, Kevin DeYoung is is only rephrasing in a way, what the Apostle John had written centuries earlier. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, do open them up now. Now would be a, ty- a good time to, to, to get them open. Turn uh, to 1 John, whether you've got a hard Bible or a Bible on your phone, whatever it is that you, uh, that you use. If you open it up to 1 John, and if you're new um, and you're not familiar with where 1 John is, just go to the end of the Bible, come back a few books, and you will find uh, John, uh, 1 John there. This is what the, the, the very start of 1 John says. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning. That which was from the beginning. Here we are in the middle of a, a series in John's uh, first letter. I've caught up with, uh, with a few of those series um, uh, that Mike has been uh, sharing with you. I've, I've not gone through all of them. Uh, so forgive me if there is a, 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 any repetition along, along there, any unhelpful repetition. But if you remember back to, uh, back, back to Mike's first sermon... John begins with this plea, and it is a plea to take note of the old, old story. His opening pitch, if you like, is to remember. Remember that which was from the beginning. Go back, John says. Go back, remember. Remember the basic, orthodox, apostolic faith that you believed from the beginning. So why does John want his readers to do this? Well, he wants to remind them, he wants to reassure them uh, that they are saved. Hence his concluding remarks uh, in 5 verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know you have eternal life. 1 John is written that we may have assurance in what we believe. And in the specific passage we're looking at today, John wants to remind Christians of the basic implication of being saved, to love and not hate. We know we're saved by the way we love, John says, and we know what love is when we look at Jesus. Let's pray before we explore this any further. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have caused this book to be written so that we may know we have eternal life. And as we think now more about what John wrote about love between Christians and indeed the hatred of the world as well, please would you open the eyes of our hearts to understand more deeply the love of the Lord Jesus that you call us to imitate. And we pray that in his name and for his glory. Amen. So, 1 John uh, um, chapter 3, we're at, and verse 11, and it says this, For this is the message you heard from the beginning. You've already heard that phrase, actually, uh, seven times in 1 John already. This is the, um, the eighth and final time that John will use it, and he uses it with an immensely practical application. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another our first heading today bring it back to love and not hate this if you like is the original gospel application because when people truly realise the depths of God's love when they realise that despite rebellion and sin in turning away from their creator he still longs despite that for them to be in a restored relationship with him when they realise that his grace is unlimited and his forgiveness is a free gift. And when they realize that if it weren't uh, for, Je- for Jesus' sacrifice, then an eternity of torment away from God is the reality. When people realize all that, they cannot but want for others to share in that love and for others to witness that love in action through their deeds. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. It's an obvious application. We should love one another. I think that uh, Jesus' final words to his disciples are probably uh, very much in John's mind as he writes this. Indeed, the similarities between uh, John's Gospel and this letter are one of the reasons why most people are convinced that this anonymous letter is actually written uh, by the Apostle John. And if you remember, in the account of uh, in John's account of Jesus' life, in, uh, he records some of the final words of Jesus. The very night that Jesus is arrested, the very night he's, he's, he's betrayed, uh, before he, he goes on to be crucified. Back then, Jesus says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Do you remember that during that infamous Last Supper, Jesus painted a very vivid picture for his followers? Vivid picture of servant-hearted love. You may recall how he, he stripped off his, his outer garments. Presumably, he, he got down on his knees and he washed the feet of his disciples, including the feet of the one he knew was going to betray him. Don't forget that. Jesus washed Judas's feet right before he sculpted off And did that dirty deed. And after Jesus had done that, he said, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And so John, remembering this, I think, in his letter says, Go back, remember, bring it back to this love. And then by way of contrast, he, he throws in a negative example from the Old Testament. If you're following in your Bibles, take a look at verse 12. He says this, do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Now, if, if you're not familiar with who Cain is, John's illustration will make little sense. But Cain and his brother Abel were the first children of Adam and and Eve theirs is the original tale if you like of of sibling rivalry can read all about it in Genesis chapter 4 and both Cain and Abel they bring offerings before the Lord but it is only Abel's that pleases God and Cain he can't deal with that he can't deal with it God tries to reassure him and he tries to reassure him that it's nothing to do with favoritism but it is to do with faithfulness and Cain still can't deal with it. And out of anger, out of hatred, out of, out of jealousy, we could say, he brutally murders, brutally murders his brother. And John here makes clear the reasons why. It wasn't because of the wickedness of Abel, but, verse 12, because Cain's own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. See, Cain's jealousy was not That he coveted his brother's possessions, or he coveted his brother's gifts, or, or, or anything like that. It was in the fact that he coveted his brother's righteousness. He couldn't deal with the fact that Abel was more righteous than he was. But rather than look at himself, rather than examine himself before God, rather than repent looked out and he hated Abel and and in this way he serves as what John Stott has helpfully called a prototype for the world a prototype of the world you see the world still manifests those ugly qualities that Cain displayed the world hates righteousness it does it hates godliness and therefore the world hates us this is my second main point this morning. Don't be surprised that the world hates you. Straight out of verse thirteen, do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Uh, last week was my uh, last week at Jesmond Parish Church in, in Newcastle, and uh, I was preaching in the start of a new series that we were just beginning there. A series uh, kicking off, uh, looking at questions um, about our faith. Uh, Questions that we may have about the faith, questions that the world is asking about our faith. And I began that series by looking at the question why is Christianity so disliked? My text for that sermon was John 15, where Jesus says this If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as one of its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. That might not be the kind of reassurance you are after, but this is very reassuring from the Lord Jesus. Especially today when our culture here in the UK is is rapidly changing from... Uh, being what we would call a post-Christian one to more an anti-Christian one. Opposition, a persecution, a hatred, these are all things we are told to expect. But you've clocked that, haven't you? You've clocked that. You don't, you don't need me uh, to tell you that. I'm sure that uh, uh, you have examples of your own. We are no longer one neutral option among many anymore. Maybe we once were. No, we are increasingly now seen as the problem. Think about it. Each of us, as I say, probably has our own testimony along these lines, don't we? You know, it might be a conversation with a a non-Christian family member or friend that, that rapidly turns south. You don't believe that, do you? I'm sure we've we've had these labels maybe attached to us, or certainly those that, w- that we know. It may well be in a, a very uh, a genial conversation, but that charge, that label of bigot, that label of being intolerant, being judgmental, unloving those those are coming our way, aren't they? It may be that you live in fear at school or in the workplace. I mean, yeah, you're convinced about what Jesus said, but if your mate or your boss, your family member ever found out that you really do believe, whatever it is, that there really are only two genders, that you really do believe abortion and euthanasia is wrong, if they found that out, then you would be out on your ear, out of that friendship group, out of a job, struck off, whatever it might be. I read a headline in the week earlier in the year Uh, which said this, I think it was from the New York Times, Christians pose, this was the headline, Christians pose an insidious threat. An employment tribunal declares, and I quote, this is from an employment tribunal of a doctor who was struck. Belief in Genesis 127. Genesis 127, that's that God created uh, man in his image, male and female, he created them in the image of God. This is the quote. Belief in Genesis 127 is incompatible with human dignity. And it conflicts with with the fundamental rights of others. We are an insidious threat to the world. We are incompatible, according to them, with human dignity. And we conflict with fundamental rights. And and John wants us to know, because Jesus wanted us to know, that this is the reality for Christians. Christians. Now, of course, for our brothers and sisters around the world, not least uh, in places like China, increasingly in in Hong Kong, but other places too, sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, this has been a lived experience for years, generations even. But here in the West, because of the remarkably privileged position we've we've enjoyed, Christianity has enjoyed for hundreds of years, it's easy to forget that. And we're surprised at opposition. We're surprised at persecution. We, we could be surprised um, by that hatred. And Jesus says, and John says, don't be. Don't be surprised. Think of it this way. We are engaged in a spiritual battle. The Bible uses that terminology. We are at war. And when we're at war, what do we expect? We expect hostility. When a soldier... He's down in his foxhole, and he's, he's shot at. The rounds are flying overhead. He doesn't poke his head up out of that foxhole and go, Oh, what are you doing? Was it, was it something I said? Have you got something against me personally? No, he doesn't do that. He, he expects it. He doesn't like it. He won't like it. It's not easy, but he expects it, and he plans on it. He is prepared for it. So John says, bring it back to love, not hate, but don't be surprised, though, that the world... Hates you when you love. Thirdly, the mark of true of a true Christian is brotherly love. We're in verse fourteen now. Verse fourteen through to fifteen. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Here is the central, uh, the point of these few verses, if you like. The central point of the assurance that's that's coming out of these few verses from this morning. Your love for one another is a clear sign that you have passed from death to life. My love for you, your love for me, is an important ground of assurance for believers. Speaking personally for a moment, it has been uh, wonderful to be on the receiving end of your welcoming love uh, this, this week. To have received messages and, and cards and um, invitations uh, it has been such a blessing uh, to us, and I, I want to thank you so much uh, for that. I know that many of you have also been uh, involved in very practical ways uh, in sprucing up 52 Stones Manor Lane as well, so I just want to thank, uh, thank you so much for that. We are grateful. And according to John here, we can take assurance from such loving service to each other by contrast verse 14 continues anyone who does not love remains in death anyone who hates is uh, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him again these are these are Stark words that John writes. And I know Mike last week spoke um, a little bit apologetically about uh, tenses. Um, but 1 John is a great example of where understanding the tenses um, aids our, our sort of fuller understanding of what John is really uh, saying and communicating. And in, in both verse 14 and 15 here, John is using the present tense form of the verbs it is, an, it is an ongoing, if you like, failure to love. It is an ongoing hatred. He's not talking about one-offs. It is an ongoing failure to love that is the mark of those who are not saved. The mark of those who remain in death. The mark of those who therefore have no eternal life in them. Think of it like this. John is, is far more concerned with, with our direction of travel, if you like, than he is by perfection on in that direction of travel. See, we are either all either tracking towards God or we are tracking away from God. One direction is either that way or the other. There is no middle ground. Now, of course, we can track towards God and we fail often. And we do. And we need to keep bringing our failures to God and asking for his forgiveness. We saw that right at the start in chapter one of, of this letter to 1 John. But it is also possible... Because of God's common grace, to be tracking away from God and be capable of much love towards others. We know that, don't we? We all know people who are not going on with the Lord or who, who are walking in darkness, in, in but they are still very loving and caring people. Put it another way, the mark of the Christian is love. Love is a Christian distinctive, but love doesn't make you a Christian. But you can't be a Christian, John is saying, without loving others, without loving the brothers and sisters. This is what John is saying here. The distinctive mark of a true Christian is brotherly love. Which leads to the final section of this passage. Fourthly, what is love anyway? What is love? It's a question that has been asked countless times, not least in in popular culture, uh, I'm a child of the 80s, so uh, when I think back to the 80s, I think of Howard Jones and Foreigner asking uh, this sort of question. If you track forward into the 90s, you get to the likes of Hadaway. More recently, uh, Kaiser and others, they've all been asking this question in pop music. What is love? They want to know what love is. It's the question, actually, of our culture. Just in preparation, I just did a Google search, and there was Will Smith asking a similar question, trying to work out What is love? And the answer to our culture's question, the answer to that question is here. It is found in verse 16. This is how we know what love is, John says. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. You want to know what love is? Then take a good long look at that old rugged cross. That is where we see what love is, really is. The sort of love that we see in Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross is the sort of love that his followers are called to imitate between themselves. Second part of verse 16, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Surely John here has in his mind once again those words of Jesus the night before he died. Where Jesus said this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Of course, for most of us, that is not meant to be taken literally. We will not all be called to lay down our lives in some heroic fashion. Some of us might, we can't negate that possibility entirely. But most of us won't be called to pay that ultimate sacrifice. It is the principle of sacrifice, not the literal act. And John knew that, and so he illustrates the principle in a very practical way here in his letter. He says this, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on, him, on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So in closing, here very briefly are six defining characteristics of Christian love that come from these verses that we would do well to imitate. Firstly, love is self-sacrificial. It's self-sacrificial. It is, as one commentator has put it, the willingness to surrender that which has value for our own life to enrich the life of another. That which has value for mine, I'm going to give it up for the value of your life. And so in that linked sense, love is also, as well as being self-sacrificial, it is also life-giving. We give of our life for the life of our brothers and sisters. We do so in ways when we love them that will enhance their lives, that will enhance their lives physically, yes, but also spiritually. And that, of course, can mean a hard conversation sometimes. It can mean a gentle rebuke. The laying down of our lives, the inconvenience that that might bring is in order to enhance and provide life. For each other both now and on into eternity love is self-sacrificial it is life-giving it is also generous we see that in these verses if you have something and someone else needs it if you have an abundance and you can share that's what love does isn't it Maybe, maybe it is apples, uh, rhubarb, uh, maybe whatever it is you can share from the garden. You've got an abundance of that, then you know we share that sort of stuff, don't we? Maybe it's money. Maybe it's the use of a spare room for the night or for a season. Maybe it's a car. Whatever it is, love does not hold on too tightly to one's material possessions, but it generously shares with brothers and sisters, particularly to those in need. And so fourthly, Love is also compassionate. See, if you see me uh, in need, but you have no pity, that's not love. If I see you struggling and I close my heart, so to speak, to you, I'm not loving you. I mean, yeah, we can be generous with each other, can't we, when we have plenty? That's a relatively easy thing to do. But when we're in need, when my washing machine breaks down and it's going to cost you to come out and help when you learn that that brother or sister is struggling to pay the rent and and actually to help them means foregoing something for yourself and when a friend without their own private transport has to travel the length of of the country for a family funeral and has no clue how they're going to do it and you're going to take your last day off leave to help them with it that is compassionate love Treating others as we would long to be treated ourselves in that situation. Love's compassionate. And fifthly, love is practical. Because yes, it is about possessions and things. It's about broken pipes and cakes and toys and fixing cars or whatever it is. But it's also about your actions and the giving of time. It's about presence. About being there. I remember here Rob Parsons from Focus on the Family saying this wants that love is not spelled L-O-V-E, it's spelled T-I-M-E. It's about the giving of our time, counsel, prayer. Because finally, love is truth. To love truthfully is to love more than in word only. And I can't put this any better than James does in his letter. James writes this. He says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, he says, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. We love not just in word, but in deed, and therefore in truth. So, St. John's, bring it back to love, not hate. Don't be surprised that the world hates you. Remember that the mark of a true Christian is brotherly love. It is love that is self-sacrificial, life-giving, generous, compassionate, practical, and true. Let's pray in response. And perhaps you'd just like to take some time to respond in the quiet of your own heart as you do business with the Lord um, in response to his word this morning. What is the Holy Spirit challenging you over right now? What is he prompting you about? Just a few moments quiet. Our loving Heavenly Father, please, by your Holy Spirit's power, don't allow us to leave this place unchanged this morning. Help us to expect, help us to prepare for the world's hatred. but Help us to love, Lord, not with words or speech only, but with actions and in truth. And we ask this in your name. We ask it for our assurance and we ask it for your glory. Amen.